Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the 5 by bringing you the best in rapid-fire board game reviews. On this episode, Mike shares a few words on Codename's duet. We'll find out if Hanami Koji earned Ruth's favor. I'll be back to saddle up and talk about Great Western Trail. Sarah will lead us on a journey through Seventh Continent. And then we'll cut to Lindsay with her words on Scythe. Codenames is hot. Codenames has been hot since its release back in 2015 and hasn't dropped out of the top 5 or 10 games played per month on BGG since. Two-player variants are also hot these days. So the only way Codenames Duet by Vlada Shavadal and Scott Eaton could be hotter is if it was a dice variant. Thankfully, it's not. But I wouldn't have blamed CGE if they had tried that. Okay, so no dice, but what is this? For people who've played base Codenames, very little has changed mechanically. You have a grid of 25 words, and you take turns giving one-word clues with the number of cards you feel your partner should be able to get from that clue. The one-word part being my most broken rule, but it falls under loosening up the rules. Also possibly known as cheating, but whatever. The main difference being that instead of two teams facing off against and racing each other, in Codenames Duet, the two players are working together to identify the 15 agents before the specified number of rounds run out. If you've played the original, everything that happens in Duet will probably feel pretty intuitive. Like the original, Codenames Duet really taxes my brain. I love words, and am a bit of a word nerd. At least in the enjoys learning new words as an adult way. But Codenames and Duet are not about knowing a lot of words. It's about being able to draw connections between words. Clearly a skill that I lack beyond the obvious. Duet, in particular, seems to be set up for playing with someone you are close to and have a shared meta-universe with. So that when my wife says lazy too, I can get that she meant coach and potato, which, coach and potato being right next to each other, makes for an obvious joke. But levels of closeness can also horribly backfire as comments of, how do you not remember, and I was certain you knew that, come up. For instance, my daughter was very sad that I was not aware that Hercules carried a shield with a lion on it despite having gotten her books on Greek mythology. And my wife, while pondering my clue of painted too, looked at makeup and stated out loud that while she would have made the association, there's no way I would have. And I had to just sit there with my mouth shut, which is hard for me, while she passed it by and picked a bystander. The standard game of duet plays in just nine rounds. With 15 agents to discover in the game, that's very few single-card clues you can give, making misfires of what you assume your partner knows, or assumptions that your partner wouldn't make a certain association to be more painful in duet than in the base game. In the base game, so long as you're keeping pace with your opponents, you're fine. It was rare in base code names that I felt we were out of the game. Maybe it's just me, but I feel the pressure to give multi-card clues much more intensely in duet. I can usually tell in the first couple rounds how the game is going. If I can only give a single card clue in the second round, we're sunk. So, I guess to summarize, this is both my favorite and least favorite code names. My favorite because it fosters a desire to play with those who you have a real connection to. It's cooperative, which is a bonus in this house, and I don't need a large group to play it with my wife. The art is wonderfully eye-catching and kind of diverse, but could be better. It requires some serious thought, but is very streamlined. Not only did my family like it, but my daughter was able to teach it after reading the rules. The downsides are that there is nowhere to hide. Each player must be the clue giver, and if coming up with those connections is not your forte, 
then this edition won't work for you. I also feel, being a two-player game, the lack of diversity in players who could get the clues is also a downside. And lastly, I find the campaign of setting up the round tokens to only allow a certain subset of bystanders to be found to be not to my liking, and my albeit one attempt to play that way. The game is random. Yes, there's a skill and finesse to the game, but what cards are out there and what cards are your agents is up to the luck of the draw, and sometimes finishing that base of nine rounds is more than one could logically hope for. All that said, would I recommend Codenames Duet? Yes, absolutely. If someone wants a more intimate version of Codenames to play with a close family member or friend. And also if they agree that they are comfortable being the clue giver. I mean, maybe there are some people out there who get super stressed out being the guesser. They'd be out of luck too. But to me, the clue giving is the hardest part. Sorry, that probably sounds more down on it than I really am. Codenames Duet is really a fun, quick, enjoyable game that I like playing with my wife and family. It's just so similar, but also so different from base Codenames that I wanted to really cover how it differs. So, that's Codenames Duet. If you wish to tell me that I'm wrong 100, then you can do so on Twitter, at Mike Risley. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and this episode I wanted to talk about Hanamakoji. Designed by Kota Nakayama and published in 2013 by Emperor S4, the game is beautifully illustrated by Maisherly. And what you get here is a simply stunning two-player, fairly abstract game featuring players vying to gain the favor of seven master geisha who live in the old capital. In Hanamakoji, both players will have the same four actions to perform each round, but as each action can only be performed once, they must choose the order in which they perform them. Once all the actions have been taken, then all the cards in the deck will have either been played openly into one of the player's scoring areas, will have been secretly held back by a player to be scored, or will have been removed from play by a player. The two secret scoring cards will be revealed at the end of the round and added to their respective owner's scoring areas in front of the corresponding geisha, before each geisha master rewards her favor token to the player who possesses more of her cards. If one player has earned the favor of either 4 geisha, or of geisha totaling 11 or more charm points, they'll immediately win the game. Otherwise, the cards will be shuffled, a card will be randomly returned to the box, and a new round begins, with the favor tokens remaining where they are. If a third round is played without a clear winner, then players simply end the game and add up the charm points of the geisha whose favor they did manage to claim, in order to declare a winner. With each round taking maybe 20 minutes, a full game typically ends up around the 20-25 minute mark, which is pretty perfect, as you'll likely want to play again right away. It's a simple game to teach. The actions are clearly understandable and nicely represented by two sets of tokens, that each pair will flip as they take a turn, reminding them of what options remain to them. The deck of 21 cards has the same number of cards for each geisha as her charm point value. This value is printed on both the oversized geisha cards, and on every one of her regular cards, making it rather easy for players to quickly establish how many of her cards they hold and what amount of her favor they represent. The tricky part is reading your opponent to figure out how many they might have for the same geisha. And that's what I love about the game. Like many abstract games, it's a super fast teach letting players get going quickly, and the true depth in the game lies in the interactions between players. Half of the available action options involve a variation on the theme of I pick, you choose. One of these has a player place three cards face up for their opponent to choose one, while the other has the player place down two face up pairs of cards, of which the opponent selects a pair. In both cases, the opponent will add their chosen card or cards to their scoring area, and then the active player will add all the remaining cards to their area. 
in a game about earning majorities of card types, and in which some geisha have just two cards associated with them. Deciding what to offer up to your opponent is a pretty tense decision, and having them select the thing you were actually willing to give up feels pretty damn satisfying. When all four actions have been used, the deck will be empty, and so it's possible that leaving a particular action till late in the round might mean you're relying on the luck of the initial draw that starts your turn, before giving your opponent their pick of your hand. It all depends how many cards you've already used, and makes deciding when to play which action even trickier. With secret scoring cards, and players throwing out cards during the round, it's delightfully difficult to figure out how much you actually need to invest in a particular geisha to win her favor. Add in the fact that after the deck is shuffled at the start of the round, a card is returned secretly to the box, and it's even trickier to figure out whether you safely hold a majority or not. And I love it. Seeing what card my opponent's been hiding, or triumphantly flipping my own secret card, makes the end of the round exciting even before we assess if someone's actually won the game. And subsequent rounds get even more interesting due to the fact that the favor tokens don't reset. So now you're starting with an uneven distribution. And deliberately tying a geisha you've already won will prevent her favor being stolen from you, while you concentrate the rest of your round on winning the favor of the other masters whose favor's less decided. There are a ton of really interesting two-player games out there, including Caverna, Cave vs. Cave, which I talked about in episode 17, and Codenames Duel, discussed by Mike in this very episode. Hanamakoji is a welcome addition to this particular area of my collection. It plays super quickly, it looks absolutely gorgeous, the components are lovely, and it generates an excitingly tense battle of wits between you and your opponent of choice that's over quickly enough to allow for repeated plays and for the avoidance of long-held grudges. There's a lot of game in this tiny, easily portable box, so if there's a place in your life for two-player games, then I highly recommend grabbing a copy, especially since you can find it for about $14 or $15 online. So until next time, I'm off to catch up on some writing. But you can always find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com if you want to talk about anything in depth, or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. When I was a teen, my grandfather's relatives came to visit us from Ireland. The youngest of our relations asked if we had horses and was kind of surprised that she hadn't stepped off the plane onto our huge ranch. I can only assume that Hollywood and the TV show Dallas had led her astray. Y'all, we Texans aren't all ten-gallon hats and yeehaws. And yes, I'm aware I just used y'all on this podcast. I did grow up going to the rodeo every year, so maybe my young Irish cousin was on to something. But frankly, I know just as much about our cowboy kin as I do about most things, which is to say, not very much. Thematically, Great Western Trail isn't something I'm immediately drawn to, and that's probably why it took until the summer of 2017 for me to play it. That was totally my mistake. Great Western Trail introduces the players to the world of cattle drives in the Old West. Players compete, racing from Texas to Kansas City in the hopes of loading up and selling the greatest value cattle you can bring with you across the plains. But this is no easy task because you'll find yourself facing possible roadblocks and hazards and other cowboy strongholds designed to impede your journey, but hopefully you can employ enough help to get your valuable herd to safety. Great Western Trail is a little bit deck builder, a little bit of tile laying, and a whole lot of cleverly crafted strategy. On each player's turn, 
they can move their cowboy up to three spaces across the board. Only moving onto or past tiles already on the board count as a movement point, but you and your ranchers can build outposts along the trail, decreasing the speed one can race to Kansas City. Once you've decided where to hitch up for the night, you'll take the available actions listed at your stop. Actions on locations can only be performed once per turn, but they can be done in any order. Available actions might include discarding certain cattle carts to gain some fast cash, hiring one of those aforementioned workers from the available tiles in the job market, buying some new and hopefully more valuable cattle to add to your deck. Maybe you'll earn some certificates to increase the value of your herd later on, or maybe you want to add one of your own stops along the trail. Finally, you and your cattle and your crew make it to Kansas City and it's time to reap your hard-earned payday. Players will reveal their hand of cattle cards and gain money equal to the value of each unique card. Players can also trade in previously earned certificates to increase income during this step. You load up your cattle onto the awaiting train car and deliver your cattle to a city along the railroad based on the total value of your cattle. After all these steps have been performed, cattlemen will return to the beginning of the trail and players will draw back up to their hand limit from their cattle deck. Play continues until the last space in the job market is filled. Everyone will get one last turn, and then it's time to decide who the roughest, toughest, rootinest, tootinest cowpoke is. The game is pretty simple in terms of mechanics. There's just a lot of them. It's a medium-weight euro I can pull out with relatively newish gamers when helping them take that leap into that level of gaming. Gives my copy of Stone Age a bit of a break. I can't speak personally on how it plays beyond two players, but I do know that I love it as a two-player game, but I'm itching to play it with three or four. Lately, our game nights have been these seven-person events, and we just haven't had the chance. But this isn't my first rodeo, and there's nothing about this game that makes me believe pushing it to four players would be any less enjoyable, but would absolutely make me change my strategy, which is something I'm often looking to do in a game. With the nearly endless options when it comes to tile laying and the luck of the deck building, this game is highly replayable. Even the player boards have two sides for when you feel things might be getting a little stale. Also, there's cowboy meeples. That's probably all I need to say about that. Great Western Trail retails for about $65, although it can be found cheaper online, and is right in line with other games of this weight. So giddy up and grab yourself a copy. For the 5 by, I'm Stephanie Stone-Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Did you ever play point-and-click adventure video games, like Myst or Grim Fandango or Machinarium? I played a lot of them, until wrist tendonitis made me give up video games. I never thought a board game could capture the feel of those classic point-and-click adventures, until I played The Seventh Continent. Designed by Ludovic Rudy and Bruno Sauter and published by Sirius Pulp, The Seventh Continent was a Kickstarter game that may not ever get a retail release, but there is a second Kickstarter for a reprint that launches on September 26th, the day before this review comes out. The Seventh Continent is an exploration game set on a fictional new continent, just discovered near Antarctica. You play either a literary character like Victor Frankenstein, or a real-life explorer like Mary Kingsley, exploring the continent with a set of cards for the map. 
a very large set of cards that you place one by one, expanding the map as you explore. There's also an adventure deck, which you draw from to perform actions. Deck management is crucial in the Seventh Continent because you lose the game by using up the adventure deck. Most actions require you to draw cards, sometimes a lot of cards. As the game goes on, you collect skills in your hand and items in your inventory that reduce the number of cards needed for specific types of actions. But no matter how effectively you use skills and items, you still steadily deplete the deck as you explore. There are a few ways to return cards to the adventure deck, and you need to do them as often as possible. The Seventh Continent is somewhere between a game and a campaign. The suggested playtime is 5 to 1,000 minutes, and while I can't imagine how you could go so wrong that you ended the game in 5 minutes, I can see a game lasting 15 hours. Fortunately, it comes with instructions for saving your game by putting away the active cards from the map, your hand and inventory, and the discard pile, in a way that it can all be easily set back up again to continue later. This innovative ability to save your game is one of the ways the Seventh Continent reminds me of a classic adventure video game. Another similarity is the amount of time you spend roaming around the map basically poking things looking for something useful. But that means that just like in a point-and-click adventure, you can get to a milestone in the game, not have an item you need, and have to backtrack significantly to find whatever it was you overlooked. It's easy to overlook something by either skipping or failing the action that would reveal it. Before taking an action, you can't usually tell whether you'll find an item that's necessary to win the game or be bitten by a snake or spider or something. Though, more often it's going to be the poisonous something. Most actions can only be done once, so if you fail to open that chest, you never get another chance. We learned early on in our campaign never to attempt an action unless we were pretty certain we'd succeed. I don't think we ran into any actions that would have made the game unwinnable if we'd failed, but we've only played through the first campaign, so I can't say it never happens. You can also miss key information because some map cards have tiny numbers printed on them. When you spot those numbers, you're supposed to remove the card with the tiny number and replace it with the card that matches the number. When reading the Seventh Continent's rulebook, I thought this mechanism sounded exciting, but I don't think it works in practice. The numbers are very small and are hidden in the illustrations. I have average middle-aged eyesight and I needed a magnifying glass to find them. We found that when the game was working, we were so engaged in the narrative that we'd forget to stop and look for the numbers. Invariably, we'd wait until we got stuck then have to go back and look at all the cards, trying to find the tiny numbers we missed. On the bright side, the game comes with a magnifying glass. While actions usually involve drawing cards and counting successes, indicated by stars on the cards, sometimes you have to solve puzzles like look at two of the same picture and spot the differences, or count the number of times a specific symbol appears anywhere on your map, or find a code in one location, then use it in another location to figure out which card to draw. These puzzles can get a bit fiddly, but then again, frustrating puzzles are another hallmark of classic point-and-click adventure games. While those are some ways that the Seventh Continent's ambition exceeds its execution, there are plenty of ways that it lives up to its promise. The narrative is wonderful. The designers said they were going for a feeling of Jules Verne meets H.P. Lovecraft, and I think they achieved it. Every action feels mysterious and scary and full of possibility. It's a joy to watch the map grow as you add terrain cards and your knowledge of the continent expands. You really feel like your adventurers are exploring a strange land trying to save themselves from a curse. I also really like how crafting items work. The items all make sense. You can make a bow which helps with hunting, fighting, or fishing, but it's costly to make, unless you're on a terrain card with wood or rope, which makes crafting that item easier. 
Each item is good for a limited number of uses, and you can stack items with related keywords to save space in your inventory and pool their uses. The seventh continent is audacious, ambitious, and at times very frustrating. It does something totally new, and judged on that basis, it's a remarkable achievement. Whether it's also a fun afternoon depends entirely on how much you enjoy fiddly puzzles. If that sounds appealing to you, check out the Kickstarter that begins on September 26th. As for me, I'm glad I have the seventh continent, but I think I admire it more than I love it. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not using a magnifying glass to search for tiny numbers on cards, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hello, it's Inzi here, and this episode I'm talking about Scythe, published by Steinmeier Games, designed by Jamie Stegmeier, with artwork by Jacob Rosowski. It's a 1-5 play game that lasts around 90 to 115 minutes, number of players depending. For anyone who is not familiar, Scythe is a 4X game, set in a 1920s alternate history, where humankind and machines work together to rebuild Europe after the Great War. You win by accumulating the most wealth, based on number of completed objectives, number of resources and territories under your control. I was always interested in Scythe, having seen and heard a lot about it since its mega successful Kickstarter campaign and 2016 release. So when it came to me as a review copy, I couldn't wait to try it. And as I have to pass the game on to a fellow reviewer, I can say with absolute certainty that I hope to buy it along with the expansions, because I've really had a good time with it. And like many games I enjoy, I'm not very good at it, so I want to play more. I certainly saw some improvements after my initial muddle through, but Scythe is really the kind of game you need to spend a lot of time with and immerse yourself in in order to give yourself the opportunity to explore different factions and strategies available. And this is one of the aspects I really liked about the game, I played with all the factions bar one, and I appreciate how the gaming experience altered with each, as their abilities, most of which are unlocked during the game, are very different from one another. Your personal objectives also vary from game to game, adding another layer of replayability, and Scythe really excels in this area because overall there are so many options available to you as to how to win. I very much like the top and bottom actions on your player board, and how to play mechs, enlisting and construction represent a wealth of decisions every turn. It's also interesting how the combination of top and bottom row actions, which vary from one player ball to another, influence your decisions. And I found this quite a novel approach to action selection, kind of got my brain working in a different way. For the impatient gamer in me, I was frustrated at first with the pacing of the game. But the more I played, I came to accept, as this is an engine building game, it takes a while to power that engine. And once you do, you're away and the avenues to take and the ambition to win grows as the game progresses. But the initial turns you spend getting up and running can be frustrating if you just want stuff to happen immediately, and it's just not that kind of game. I'm also not sure that those looking for an out-and-out fighting game will be satisfied. There is the aspect of area control, which leads to some conflict, but it really depends on number of players, the faction you're all playing as, and your personal objectives. The games that are more conflict-heavy mean your mechs and workers go head-to-head, but in a one-shot blind bid scenario using cards and a personal dial, so it's not a huge fighting experience. After posting a picture of the game to my Instagram, I was asked if I think the game would be the success it was without the fancy artwork, which is indeed pretty awesome. But you know, I think it goes hand in hand. If the game had very basic artwork or something a little less polished, it would still be a great game because the design works. But it kind of coexists. The theme and the world building are very much part of the design and experience. And I admire that instead of just making a good game with a good theme, it's actually a successful attempt at integrating art and storytelling with gameplay mechanics, which resonated throughout the Kickstarter campaign 
and follow throughs the online literature and the rule book and the game itself. Whilst posting photographs of my plays to my Instagram and Twitter, I discovered that much of the imagery has a personal meaning to Stegmaier and gives it a very human element. I love the encounter cards for this reason, because they add in this emotional storytelling aspect, reminiscent of a video game experience. Multiple choice evokes an emotional reaction. I found some of the choices on the encounter cards to be very amusing and was often found chuckling when reading them. The first option is the nice one. You do the decent thing, you gain something. The second and third option are often a little mean or flat out cruel, but gain a better reward. And some of them did make me laugh, but I could never bring myself to actually take the third option. Not because I'm this amazingly virtuous person, because I'm not. But the story that accompanied the options evoked a reaction of disgust. Like, there's no way I'll destroy a villager's mech or force someone out of retirement, no matter what the reward. But it did get me thinking, what if that decision was going to make or break my victory? Would I do it then? It's only a game, after all. But what if it was real life? So that made me feel a bit uncomfortable, and that's clever stuff. I feel that Stegmaier truly understands games and people, and that's what makes Scythe and his other titles the success that they are. They're innovative in their approach, explore unusual themes, and immerse you in new worlds, but he never pushes the gameplay into unfathomability. I have to say that the hype was very well justified with Scythe, and I feel like I've definitely been missing out by not playing it sooner, and I absolutely want to play more. All of my games so far have been two-player, and it works fine, possibly slightly unbalanced depending on your chosen factions, but not too much so. I'm really excited to try this with more than two players, and I'm also dying to get stuck into the solo variant, which is actually designed by Morton Monrad Pedersen. So I think Scythe will be going onto my festive wish list this year along with the two expansions, which are Invaders from Afar which adds two more factions, and the Wind Gambit, comprising of two new modules. But until then, let's just say, I'm rather sad to see Scythe go. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube channel, Shiny Happy Meeples, pop on my blog, www.shinyhappymeeplesblog.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter, capital S, capital H, Meeples. Bye for now. You've been listening to The 5 by. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5bygames. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or head over to our website, 5bygames.com. From all of us at the 5 by, thanks for listening. The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.